Joe Kennedy. And I'm Dave Gebro. Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. But before we start tearing the meat off the bone, it's essential that I, I gotta relay this story to you, Joe's. Yeah, I'm hyped to hear this because you keep telling me that you have a story, but you're not going to tell me what it is. <laughs> that's right, that's right. It's a secret story. So I was walking down the street the other day in Carson, California. Uh, where it stinks right now. Where it, it does stink right now. And in fact, let me set the scene. I work as a licensed hearing instrument specialist, and I was wearing a lab coat, walking down the street at a furious pace because I walk 3.2 miles a day while reading Mojo in, on my phone. So I'm walking down the street in a lab coat, reading Mojo, procuring essential knowledge to be able to do this thing with you, right? This is the lengths to which we go. And I'm walking by a, a wheelchair I see in the peripheral of my vision. All of a sudden, out of, out of nowhere, uh, a pit bull leaps out, okay, because it was a service dog and it thought that I was walking too close to the wheelchair, and clamps onto my leg tears through my jeans and its teeth sink into my leg. Is that what service dogs are supposed to do? No. Okay, so the dad... Because it's a service dog, it mauled me. (laughs) I was mauled. So not only that, but the pit bull pushed me into oncoming traffic, okay, into the road. So my first... uh, You know, I'm in shock, okay? I've never been attacked like that. So I look down at my bleeding leg look up and I just keep saying what the fuck over and over again and then so my wife designs jeans for a living Uh, these jeans that I was wearing were expensive jeans but I was given them for free I'm in shock and I say these jeans cost two hundred dollars and I then I look at this you know this this guy in a wheelchair and his dad and I'm like wow I just completely Completely shit the bed as far as he, as far as having any credibility right now. So I just said, "Have a nice day," and walked away. And this guy that I passed was like, "Holy shit, dude!" Because he saw. I mean, it was it was really intense. It could have gone really bad from there. At least, at least the dog uh, let go. Didn't that was all there was. Sometimes they can really like a. Uh... Yeah, sometimes they could really go to town. I thought that's what was going to happen. Yeah. Plus, it was really close to my weenus. <laughs> Look. Oh, you're wearing the jeans. I'm wearing the jeans. Yeah, well. It looks like it was like intentionally distressed, but it was a pit bull mauling. <laughs> well, I'm glad the jeans were relatively okay. Yeah, they're relatively okay. And your okay. weenus is awesome. That's okay. right. It's in perfect working condition. Today, we are resuming our career overview of the great Pink Floyd. Yummy! Specifically, we're moving into the rock dinosaur billionaire years. So the way that Discography works is we go through an entire output of an artist, uh, the everything, and we research it heavily, and then we assess our objective opinions, and we give it to you. Those opinions. Make sure you tune in. Uh, upcoming uh, episodes include Bad Finger, Cocteau Twins, Back, Sly and the Family Stone, Van Halen. So last time we checked in with Pink Floyd, they had just completed, we had just gotten through the uh, discussing their album, Adam Hart, Mother, Bad Side A, Great Side B. And now they're kind of at a crossroads. Um, where do they go next? The answer is metal. 
It's all of the band members working together to produce a true work of art. So, you know, we say goodbye to that forever after this record. Um, but if you look at the songwriting credits for the record, it's it's kind of sad. They wrote everything together. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a big album for me. In the early 90s, um, uh, I really took to this album hard. It includes my favorite song by them, Fearless. Yeah, which should have been a big radio hit, you would think. Um, but um, So they're at a higher level just in general. I think in songwriting, playing, production, arrangement, they are, they are kind of at the full... Uh, they're in full flower at this point of their career. They're, they're, they're not really searching for anything. And it's they, the they last... It. It's, the, it. it's the very last unselfconscious Pink Floyd album. Yeah, right. And it doesn't necessarily need like a theme or anything to hang over it or even a style. It's just No, but just man, a, does it hang together. Even yeah. Seamus, which is I mean admittedly a turd, it, it doesn't stick out that badly. Yeah, it, it hangs together despite they're not really going for some overarching theme or some pretentious, you know, like a story or something. And, and and Joe, interestingly, like you know, this record was born from complete aimlessness. Uh, Echoes came about in a form of a series of experiments called Nothings. And so the original album title was Return of the Son of Nothings. <laughs> um, it's interesting how much better Echoes works, which is kind of a loose composition, a lot of it, right? So there's kind of a lot of atmospherics. It builds into like a really compelling melody and changes and a, and a jam. How that works so much better than Adam Hart Mother, which is all very formal and like part A, part B, part C, and it feels very rigid. Where Echoes feels like it has a looseness and an elasticity to it. Like they're, it feels like they're making it up as they're going along in the best way. Yeah, it, all, it, it literally always sounds good. I mean, that album just has a vibe to it. Now, I'm going to challenge you on something, Joe. Mm-hmm. You're going to tell me how this was done. The vocal line of one of these days I'm going to cut you into little pieces. I read about this. Um, it's a tape effect, right? So it's a slow Correct. down. Uh, they, tell me how it was done and I'll tell they, you if you're right or they wrong. They did it with the tape super sped up or something. And then... It Using was, what kind of voice? It was through a vocoder or some kind of synthesizer? Falsetto voice. A falsetto. Okay, so At yeah. At double so, speed. Okay, so... And they, replayed at normal right. speed. That's right. Judges accept that. I accept that. Yeah, yes. yeah. I knew yeah. it was a thing that they did. To me, this is this album is the culmination of all the stumbling around they'd been doing for the the previous three years. It really is um, the most well shaped version of that sort of uh, that tangential drift. Yeah, that just feels so good. But now the songwriting was catching up to the production in a perfect marriage. The only thing that isn't amazing about the record is the um the the only shitty hypnosis album cover they ever produced right it's okay it's fair <laughs> i mean i associate it so closely with the record now but um this uh, this is probably my favorite pink floyd album and so it gets a rock solid five stars for yeah me. this is an easy five i mean if this isn't a five i don't know what's a five um but also another triumph of metal is the sequencing it's the, the the songs are sequenced perfectly. Perfectly, yeah. Everything kind of creates an atmosphere from the thing that came before. I mean, it. the best albums that have ever been made, as far as I'm concerned, are self-contained sound worlds that sound like you could just step into and exist in. Yeah, absolutely. this feels like that. This is absolutely one of those. It's it sounds nothing like My Bloody Valentine, Loveless, 
but it takes me to a place the yeah. way that record does. Yeah, there's a lushness to it that's comparable for sure. And I think there's three albums in their career where they were able to do that, and this is one of them. Piper and, and a later one that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, so moving on to 1972, the year I and you were born, we have Obscured by Clouds, uh, which is the original soundtrack that Floyd did for La Vallée uh, for Barbe Schroeder again. They were on that guy's jock for some reason. There's some great songs on this. Mostly there's some great song titles, including The Gold, comma, It's In The, dot, 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 and What's uh, The Deal. These are great song titles. Not as good necessarily as uh, Nick Mason's fictitious sports side two. Yeah, that's got all great titles. All of them. Yeah. Uh, that, what's uh, The Deal? Okay, great song also. I like that song a lot. That made me think, like, where did the expression "What's the deal" come from? That seems like that's too early. Like 1972, "What's the deal" was already a saying. There's a lot of sayings that you would think people would know, and they don't. You you know the saying "How's tricks"? That seems old. That seems like I guess it is. I didn't realize I was old timey until I had <laughs> young that timey like people, people talk qu- like this here. Yeah, hey, twenty three is kiddo. Cash on the barrel head. That I could see. What's the deal in 1972 doesn't seem right, though. It right. seems like... Uh, Most of this album I love. Uh, Childhood, Childhood's End, that sucks. That's Limp Arena Rock. Um, actually... There's a few more of those, you know, we're playing in front of the screen, scoring the movie kind of things in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> always skippable. Well said. <laughs> um, surprising amount of that. That shitty song, by the way, is the last song Pink Floyd released to have lyrics written by Gilmore until... A Momentary Lapse of Reason in 1987. Wow. <clears throat> um, Free Four is, uh, that was the single from the record. Yeah, that's cool. That's like a little like shuffle thing. Uh, this one's, this record kind of seems like it should be before metal. It seems like it's, it's like. I agree. It, it took, it's like, an outlier. It seems like a. Uh, it's a step back. It's sort of a regression from where they were at in metal. Um, I kind of feel like they were maybe formulating Dark Side of the Moon. And yeah. then this was something. They generated so they could buy time. And I wonder if some of these, I don't really know the answer to this, but I wonder if some of these are stuff that are songs that kind of didn't make metal, but were still kind of in the mix at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it doesn't sound completely cohesive. Um, actually, my favorite song on it is the Rick Wright song. I love Stay. Stay is very good. Yeah, Stay is nice beautiful. I've always um, loved it. Burning Bridges is suitably Floydian. Um, yeah. That's a, a very again that that Crosby could have been, Stills, a, that could have been a dark side. I feel like yeah, yeah. It's I think it's a good record. It's not totally essential, but if you're a fan, if you're a fan, I mean, there's great stuff on it. I give it three stars. I gave it the same. I also gave it three stars. Then uh, that was it. Uh, then they broke up, and and um, unfortunately, that's all we have to show for them. <laughs> yeah. And you know, but it still holds up as a body of work. Mm-hmm. And thank you for joining us. Yeah. Which is not what happened. What actually happened is... Oh, yeah. Whoops. I'm reading my notes incorrectly. They became the biggest thing on planet Earth. That's right. Oddly, out of nowhere. 1973, Dark Side of the Moon. Estimated sales of over $45 million. Mm-hmm. Quadruple I, diamond. I'll tell you, as appealing as it was, there was no more doodling in the margins for this band because this record is big. Yeah. Um, the, from, well, starting here, um, the records are all kind of these big giant statements. So there's no more kind of like, we're just going to, these are the tunes we got. We're just going to go forward with this. They're all kind of these overarching concept Leviathan massive albums. And this is the start of that um, period. 
Yeah, and this is also the beginning of Waters um, in his stumbling around to find a songwriting identity, <clears throat> realizing that uh, him conflating himself with the sort of street cred built-in madness of Sid Barrett was going to be his ticket. So not only didn't he pick the motherfucker up in January of 1968, then he fucking desiccated his carcass in order to have songwriting grist for the mill, along with his boring-ass dead dad. <laughs> I don't think the dad shows up quite yet. The dad, no, well, not in the... Uh, not in, so is the dad albums, in this? There's a couple albums down the road. I don't think the dad's it, Aren't really there around. lyrics in Us and Them that are militaristic? Uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, the, the fucking... Who cares? Just have one song about your dead dad. You can't have several albums worth. Imagine if Clapton just did Tears of Heaven over albums and albums. It wouldn't his his work would not have been a lot different. <laughs> yes. So um, He would still be uh, an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> exactly. So this um, is the, the most infuriating aspect of this stage of their career is, I think, uh, well, I don't know if it's infuriating. It's more, it's intriguing to me conceptually and has been for a long time that if you compare Madcap Laughs to Dark Side of the Moon, before we get into the specific songs on Dark Side, conceptually, the reality of madness versus somebody who's on the outside looking in kind of you know is able to well articulate madness it is so unbelievably different you have those you know sudden uh, whiplash herky-jerky chord changes tempo changes from madcap compared to dark side is perfectly orchestrated every last piece is in place perfectly yeah to me the fastidiousness of dark side is kind of the magic of it it's, yeah it, i agree it, it is so laser focused and so um fussed over um it, it's it, it's a uh it has all these little miniature beautiful things on it there's it's the first time they worked in 16 track and it's a pretty different world going from eight track to sixteen track. You could, you're a lot less, especially at that time. Now you have unlimited, um, you know, amounts of tracks. But it was, it's a whole different way of thinking of things. Um, going going to sixteen, the their um, the, the for all of the epicness of Dark Side of the Moon. It's, it never feels heavy-handed to me. It never feels like they're going over the top. It doesn't feel like it's like preachy or like like some of the later and un, un, Yeah, and then unlike... Um, the themes don't smash you in the face, really. Right, so you look at, for example, Joe, you look at The Wall. Okay, you have songs that the band are, are practically not on. You just have uh, Bob Ezrin masturbating onto analog tape. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in a bad way, but that is really what he's doing, and not even metaphorically, probably. Um, so... You know, with this, you have all these effects and things that are layered in, but they they serve the music. It's evocative rather yeah. than something that like rather than something that pummels you over the head with its uh, message. And there's also the, there uh, they, there's a sense of dynamics on this album where the quiet parts are very quiet, and then the loud parts really explode. like when the clocks kick in on time. Yeah, or you know, the, or all the all the big high singing on "Great Gig in the Sky" and all that. Like, when it, it the, and the way it, it, it crests on yeah. eclipse, the, the the dynamics of it, the low parts, the, it, it's patient. It sets up. Yeah. the payoffs are really immense. I love every song on the record. There's yeah. there's honestly not a moment I don't love. Part of me is. Uh, relieved I feel that way because I, I feel when I love a record like this, like I'm a normal person. 
Right. <laughs> this yeah, is what yeah. normal people listen to. <laughs> yeah, sure. These are a lot of these songs have kind of made it as um, like we were talking before, classic rock radio staples. Most of the record, really, right? Like uh, "Breathe," "Time," "Money," "Us," Mo- and them. mostly "Money." Even, I mean, if, brain if you, damage. Pretty much every damage. song. Every but song. These don't feel tired to me when I hear them. Still, no, it they, always sounds good. It always sounds always like I'm sounds happy good. to hear these tunes. And it's one of the ultimate headphone records because I even remember I had been listening to it for many years, and in college in 1990 with. My and our buddy Giles Dickerson, we heard a voice we'd never heard before in uh, Great Gig in the Sky. Uh, I never said I was afraid of dying. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard that before. Mm -hmm. That blew our minds one stoned evening. (laughs) Um, But uh, definitely five stars. There's no question. This This is is an easy five stars. There There are other things that we haven't even gotten into. Like this is the last time where I feel like they really played together really great as a band. Agreed. The, the chemistry and the interplay of them, and how they're all, the, the the sense of they're all kind of creating a bigger piece of a puzzle. Um, that the just the telepathy. It's also the last them. time they sound like a band. Yeah, I agreed. I think I think we're, that's kind of part of the same thing. Yeah. Um, also, wanted to mention before we move on, I love the uh, the the way they used the uh, the the EMS synthesizer, uh, the the great synthesizer stuff on on the run and. Um, the and any um, color, any you, color like. you like, um, really beautiful. Uh, the the synthesizer they used, but they used a couple different ones, but they're made by the EMS company. And that's that was the synth that you'll see Brian Eno playing in early Roxy music. It looks kind of like a briefcase. It has it's um, if you're interested in synthesizers at all, do a YouTube search for the EMS. Um, there's one called the Synthy, that's the that was the one that was used on On the Run, and then there's another one's the Putney synth. I've gone into like hours long YouTube rabbit holes just watching EMS synth videos. Really cool stuff. Nerd. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Wish You Were Here, 1975. This is Rick Wright and David Gilmore's favorite Floyd LP. Um, it's uh, both a music industry critique and a Sid Barrett memorial. Now, for starters, songs that are about the music industry or critiques of the music industry. I mean, they don't need to exist. There's nothing more boring than hearing about how the. That's music why industry... I was always mystified that Lola was such a big album for the Kinks. Although the title track is the only outlier on the record, every other song is a whiny song about about Ray There's Davies getting ripped one. off. Eight Man is kind of like uh, kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's a sore subject for me. It's like when I songs about how the music industry is corrupt or whatever. It's you know that's who fucking cares. Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually apparently the last time they all saw Sid. Um, Sid dropped by the sessions, which is odd because the album is is about him. And by all accounts, he was completely unrecognizable. Um, And his hair was shaved. His eyebrows were shaved. He was fat. They thought he was an engineer. Yeah, yeah. He just uh, apparently was, was mistaken for an engineer before he was recognized. And he was played a mix of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Apparently did not even draw a connection that the song was even about him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've it, always he thought fa- it was about Neil Diamond. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I used to love this record. For many years, I think I've, I've been feeling that this is a very cold, uninviting record. Uh, don't enjoy listening to it. There's, uh, you know, and also 
half the record to me is just as disposable as Adam Hartmother because the second part of Shine On You Crazy Diamond is superfluous and Welcome to the Machine is a pile of shit as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty, um, I think, uh, legit criticism of this is that a good a good chunk of it is not really listenable. So there's kind of two different kinds of things in this. There's the radio staples. There's the main section of Shine On, You Crazy Diamond. There's... Um, what, uh, what's the other? Which, the title track, and have a cigar. That those are kind of the essential, sung, those, sung by uh, Roy Harper. Right. Those are kind of the essential parts of the record, and that's maybe what like sixty percent of the record in terms of running time. And then the rest of it is um, I don't like Welcome to the Machine. They um, that is kind of foreshadowing for where they went. They have a lot of these like E minor to C kind of songs that are like plotting, not very harmonically satisfying. You know, it's just a slog. It's yeah, a slog. These sloggy kind of songs. And then and, the um, second Shine On segment sounds like the shitty, shitty end of the stick of Weather Report, which to me is a distastefully shitty genre. Yeah. So they've kind of settled into a thing here. I think all the stuff, this one is, I, I've talked a lot about these songs being on classic rock radio and that taking the shine off of some of them. This is, the songs in this are really in that category for me. Um, they don't have this sort of special fairy dust magic that the, that uh, the dark side tracks have. These are ones when I hear these, I'm like, Ugh. I, I feel kind of instantly bored, even by the ones that I know are very good. Um, like, like shine on you crazy diamond. I mean, it's com- compositionally a really, a really good song. The playing's good. You know, it's, I've just, it's just too many times. I feel like I've gone there with it to really kind of enjoy it much anymore. But if you're, you know, if you're somehow um, have are not familiar with the work of Pink Floyd, you'll want to check. Want to check uh, it yeah, out. absolutely. Look, I mean, this is not a popular opinion, uh, but you know, Trump was voted president, so I mean, you know, you, you can expect whatever you can from people. Um, although this is one of the first three CDs that I ever bought. Uh, when I look back on this album, it's always with distaste and scorn. I think of the vocals on, on Welcome to the Machine and just a, a, a sort of cold, mechanized feel to it. It feels embalmed and devoid of emotion. And I got to say, for an album that considers itself so empathetically in tune with its muses, uh, it doesn't seem to have a beating heart at its center whatsoever. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I, the... the uh... I mean, like the title track, right? That one, that's a pretty sincere, pretty good song. It is. and the, that yeah. was, That's the one that I think most succeeds in kind of making an emotional connection. And the first Shine On, I think. Yeah. But I think, yeah. It's, it's, it's a mixed bag. I give it three and a half stars. I gave it four because I feel like the strong moments are kind of essential enough, even though they're not... I agree. Even though they're not personally things that I would put on maybe to listen to a lot. You know, there's... There, it's not you, you can't really hold it against it that those songs are so popular listen I love Pink Floyd but the popular opinion is that they own the 70s what I feel to be true is that they hit on this insane lottery with Darkseid and then rode that idea until the wheels totally came off yeah. and didn't really per, you know sort of perfect the concept again of doing this uh, enclosed thematic thing until the wall Right. That's yeah. what I think. That seems about right. So moving on in 1977, Animals. And so let's before we get too much into Animals, the other thing that's happening now is that they're, they have become really huge. And for a band that of this magnet, it's, it's almost a little weird that a band that's this idiosyncratic. Let's, let's go back in time. And it's, we're, they had just done the Wish You Were Here tour. Let's, we're not thinking about whatever comes next. They're monstrously massive. They're playing football stadiums. Mm-hmm. And the music they make 
is not really like party music. I mean, they're these kind of long exploratory. It's just such a different culture. That yeah, but they that, exist during in. that time, it wasn't necessarily just cracking up, cracking Budweisers. Yeah, that's well, it that's kind of like, what I'm getting to. These it people was like are on cough syrup. Yeah, these and, people are on heavy amounts of drugs. Strict <laughs> so it's nine. football stadiums full of people who are insanely fucked up. Like people, like Tangerine Dream was a big draw during that time. Lester Bangs wrote right. that really uh, indelible review of the Tangerine Dream show, and it's the entire crowd. Swaying on its feet, high on cough syrup. Yeah, so you kind of have to take that into account. Right? It, that's a thing that seems to really not be. It, it's just a, such a. I mean, it's almost fifty years ago or whatever. Now it's such a different time in the culture that a band this idiosyncratic, with this kind of like, uh, you know, it, this doesn't seem like this is music that would be filling football stadiums, but uh, it was though. Yeah, and this is also when I think of laser light shows, it's basically this shit. <laughs> I had that in my notes. It's funny that you say that. Maybe some of this sounds better if you're watching a laser light show. It always does. Anything sounds better with <laughs> yeah. lasers or sharks or tapes. Yeah. So animals, I'll let you. Uh, animals, 1977. Um, if you want a full rundown of how I feel about this, uh, I used to write a column called uh, "On Second Thought" for the International Review of Music. You can do a search. Um, but I hate this album. I hate it. This is them trying to marry. Uh, it's basically Punk Floyd, and, and but it's also proggy and it's filled with vile vitriol. Um, and to me, just very hard to stomach because it's Roger Waters. Just if you like the sound of somebody whining interminably for 40 minutes. Then. Yeah. Well, this is they're in a new phase with this here. And this is really kind of a it's they never really did anything quite like this again. But th- this is they, they gave up on any kind of like poetry or any kind of like uh, lyric clever or not even clever is not even the right word. Any kind of. It, the the lyrics are very condescending, very uh, patronizing, <laughs> extremely you know, misanthropic. You're, you're either a pig, a dog, or a sheep in in the half baked <coughs> worldview of this album. There doesn't seem to be a lot of sympathy or. Um, and they're just struggling for a concept. I mean, let's do Animal Farm, but we'll just call it Animals. Yeah, it's talk about it. I mean, now they're reaching. As far as I'm concerned, the whole they wrote it to the wheels fall, fell off. People love animals. Now, I think I, you know. Again, I'm kind of speculating here, but they had been playing the football stadium gigs, and they had reached this monstrous level of success. So it seems like when they're making this album, they're trying to do stuff that they think is going to translate in that setting. So it starts to feel like arena rock. It, it actually does start to sound like football stadium music where the kind of more introspective stuff of the last few albums didn't really make it, it's it it goes into it starts veering into the bombastic in a way that would carry through the rest of the Roger Waters era. This uh, <clears throat> as far as I'm concerned this is the worst Pink Floyd record including their later stuff when they weren't even technically Pink Floyd. Yeah, I I wouldn't go that far. I it's not good. It's not good, Dave. Yeah, it's definitely this not album's good. This album's not good, Dave. Anyone who thinks this album is good is a complete piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I give it one star. I gave this two and a half. Um, I don't think they've fallen off quite down to one star level. There's a few things on it that are kind of all right. Only Pigs the, on the Wing, and that accounts for two me, minutes of the record. Dogs is the best part of I the record. I hate dogs. So that's kind of the one that made it onto uh, the radio. The fucking song is 18 minutes long. But there's kind of a core of it that's kind of decent. Again, I, d- don't make me defend. It. I gave it two and a half. Okay. 
I got to say something also about the um, the sounds, the sonics of it. It seems to have declined. Where say what you want about Wish You Were Here, it's very pristine sounding. It has that very cl- clean, clear, crystal clear kind of as a bell kind of sound. Animal sounds kind of murky. I think the whole idea though was to try to have an immediacy like the punk movement. They saw basically. I think Waters became prescient about becoming a dinosaur and trying to merge into that lane, but keeping the long song so he can keep his sense of identity, trying to have his cake and eat it too. And it, to me, it doesn't work. Well, they missed the point entirely of what it was supposed to mean, right? The punk movement. Like, it's supposed to be about sort of taking, like, it's it's about, like, you know, the, t- getting it back to the people, and, you know, getting back to roots. And so it's this, like, half-baked concept album with these long songs that's based on Animal Farm and you know these extended jam sections and the guitar solos it's i don't know how you could miss the mark anymore i that. literally definitely never want to hear anything from this album ever again in my life seriously life is too short i've had health issues and coming out the other side the one realization i had was i'm done with animals <laughs> yeah all right M- moving on to the wall the unassailable double album classic over 30 million sold when I was 12 years old, it was my favorite album of all time, but I'm not 12 anymore, and neither are you, Joe. How do you feel about this record? Well, I never had really the initial um, uh, love and obsession with it. I never really went through a phase where this was my favorite album. In fact, I always kind of, I think I maybe enjoy it more now than I did. Um, I can appreciate it more, I feel like. Um, I mean, there's truly great songs. I mean, you have, you have Comfortably Numb, you have Run Like Hell, uh, you have uh, the thin ice in the flesh. Goodbye, blue sky. There's, I mean, there's you could great. Definitely songs. shrink this down to one record. You could, but then it wouldn't truly be the wall. I mean, it's so yeah, the, fucking. Bo- so, it's, would you say the most bombastic rock record of all time? Yeah, it, well, it picks up. It kind of the trend kind of started with animals, and they just, they just kind of lean more into it. The difference is there's there on animals. There's really no a material. It's kind of just they kind of try to find a sound, and they there's you know on on the wall. There's a lot of a material, a lot of you know a lot of um, like like uh, songs that stand up over time. The wheels fall off toward the end, admittedly, but. The first side, the way it's launched out of the canon like that with the first bunch of songs, yeah, the, it's very propulsive. The songs that are kind of the narrative songs on the record that are advancing the sort of boring storyline are the ones that lose me. And the more universal kind of songs are the ones that have kind of seems that, that have kind of survived on right. as relevant. Yeah. I mean, no one puts the wall on and skips to waiting for the worms. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. You know, there's some of the, there's a couple like, uh, you know, Goodbye Blue Sky. I like that one a lot. You don't really hear that one. That's not kind of as overdone. Um, you know, Young Lust kind of is back to this sort of, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, they're kind of, uh, kind of hints back to some of the more rocking stuff on the early soundtracky albums. Um, one of the things I love most about Comfortably Numb, uh, just historically from the perspective of being a fan of the band, is that that's really the last gasp of the creative relationship of Waters and Gilmore. Yeah, that's the last time you really hear... Well, yeah, because the, the the next record is really just a, the last it's one a, with it's Waters. It's a Waters-Wankoff session. Yeah, so this is the last time they really are working together in, in any capacity. In really. any capacity, yeah. Um, we probably should talk a little bit about Bob Ezrin. So um, his, his, uh, he's pretty essential, I think, to The Wall. I think if 
he, you know, Bob Ezrin, for those of you who don't know, is a uh, master of the concept album. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's a uh, he's a producer who leans to I would say leans towards the bombastic and leans towards um, but does it so well. So in nineteen, I think it's seventy two, when he produced Lou Reed's Berlin. Do you know the story about the song The Kids? Yeah, he made his own kids cry for the because he needed crying kids for the. The uh, this uh, I mean Berlin's my favorite That's record he's ever produced. Yeah. It's the best. I, the Berlin and the Wall are kind of the two uh, definitive examples of his Ezrinness, where he really like you know uh, the, all of the. Uh, but the uh, the Elder was him as well, wasn't it? Kisses the Elder. Yeah, that one the doesn't Lou have Reed his. Yeah, that's kiss <laughs> collab. Yeah. Oh, that's so bad. Not good. As so intriguing bad. as it sounds. No. Um, he also did, I think, Destroyer, which was their big massive yes, hit. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Th- that's kind of just pretty conventional, just big rock record. It's excellent, yeah. Um, but um, it's like a, It has like a Jack Douglas sound, you know, Aerosmith and yeah. first Cheap Trick record. The wall really leans into the sort of sound effects, audio verite, like the cinematic Ezrin thing that he's, he's known for. Including The Trial, which I believe is over five minutes long and it's I mean I don't even know if anyone in the band is on that song yeah it's pure bombastic orchestration and sound effects but I think his stuff on the wall does add a lot to it if even if it sort of can border on the silly at times he's sort of right on that on that edge to me Bob Ezrin where it's uh it's I, I think he his things are so distinctive but it's uh almost sometimes on the verge of like it being kind of ridiculous but I think it does add a lot to the wall and, and although it appeals more to the immature than the mature, I would say I'd have to say objectively it's a masterpiece. But you know it grates as well. So for that reason, I, I give it four stars out of five. I give it three and a half. Huh. Um, the other thing that um, I we haven't really talked about with the wall is um, <laughs> there are several uh, Roger Waters shouty songs where he's <laughs> singing in his sort of shouty voice. Those are instant fail. <laughs> what are instant. some of those? Um, I don't even. I didn't. I don't have it listed here. But you know, you know the ones I'm talking about. We just like, yeah, yeah. He, and he does that a lot on um, the final cut too. Um, then they there's tend, some they other tend, affectations. They tend, be, that, they tend to be the ones that are kind of like the, and like the empty narr- spaces. When you think of songs yeah, like the, empty spaces, the narrative that, driving kind of songs exactly. that are that are kind of telling the story. Which you know this, we haven't really talked about that either. This he's where he spits on the fan and like right. So this this actually originated during the Animals tour. He's a misanthropic piece of shit. So he looked down at a teenage fan that was cl- trying to clamber up. Uh, and overtake, uh, not even overtake security, just was whatever. I just saw a big fence or something. That yeah, yeah. So Roger Waters spit at him. And he didn't, I, I didn't even think the story is that he was retributive uh, or contrite in any way, shape, or form. I think it is kind of. I think to me, I think he was more clinical about, huh, how does a person go from this to this? I don't think he was thinking, like, how did I fall this far? A normal person would. Well, yeah, it's well, if you think about it that way, right? It's kind of a rationalization, right? Well, of yeah. course I spit on the kid. This is all the things that happened to me. My dad died and uh, To him, to him look, to you and I It's the I, uncharitable way. If you or I spit on a kid, we would feel awful for a long time. 
he saw it as grist for the mill for a double well, yeah, concept he's, he's, album. He, he, it, the whole album is kind of a rationalization of why it happened. You know, yeah, this would yeah. happen to anybody. Anybody right, that's right. the kid. Right, because you know, my, if you, my... If you were subjected to being this rich and famous. Because my dumb fucking dad died and Sid Barrett uh, and you know, was the, be, was the cloud be, uh, that reigned over me for my entire had, career. And I based all my songwriting around this guy that... It went insane. And then it turned out I had widespread adoration from millions of people. It was terrible. <laughs> How, what, what would you do? So okay. That's it, the uncharitable way to look at it. The more charitable way to look at it is that he is like sort of offering a, uh, you know, the, he's acknowledging the terribleness of that incident and uh, I don't attempting think to so. come to terms with it. I don't it. think so. Uh, you can be the judge of uh, discography. He just nation. hates. You look at his face and he looks like he's seething mad all the time. The fuck does he have to be mad about? Yeah, he always kind of did, I guess. That fucking scowl, dude. Yeah, I mean, you think I bought anything from him after? Yeah, I did buy uh, pros and cons of hitchhiking because at that point nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then Radio Chaos, it was like, okay, see you later, dude. Yeah. I never listened to a single Roger Waters album after that. Yeah, I I have not uh, delved into his solo career either. Um, Who cares? I think you really need the, the all the elements of Pink Floyd to be working absolutely for it to put the right frame around his stuff. Um, but and, even and that, when he, and that's already breaking down a bit at the wall. Um, but then the final cut is a whole other level. So that's four years later, 1983. It's basically an amalgam of uh, a bunch of wall outtakes mixed with 1982 recordings. Rick Wright is not on the record. Uh, it is the last album that Roger Waters was on. And uh, Nick Mason primarily provides only sound effects. Right. And uh, there is even more of the sort of shouty Roger Waters singing on this and of the uh, kind of boring narrative songs that are um, a lot, lot it more. It is so boring. Yeah, it's... The, I, I the whole record is so boring. There's not really a highlight. Um, there's not really anything to recommend it. Um, nothing, nothing. Any, play, any self-respecting playlist would omit this entirely as a blight Sort of like Velvet Underground Squeeze. Like to, it seems like uh, very far below even animals. To Have me. you heard Velvet Underground Squeeze? I think I flipped through it on YouTube. Or you got to hear the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that that exists is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And my favorite thing about Mojo Magazine, by the way, mm-hmm. is that they would examine such a micro time period as just VU during Squeeze. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that gives a nerd a boner, bro. <laughs> anyway, um, so... The final cut is an anti-war concept album about his dad primarily, who died when that piece of shit was four months old. And he's still struggling with the. He was struggling with this, going back to Corporal Clegg. Mm-hmm. He's just riding his dad's dead carcass along with Sid Barrett. Well, the, the conceit of the album is that, the, that England's invasion of the Falkland Islands was like a betrayal of the things that his dad died for. Um, which, okay, maybe, but, um, you know. Nothing it, screams rock and roll in arena rock as fought the Falcons. Like a, a border dispute of <laughs> yeah, yeah. disputed territories in the, uh, yeah. It shouldn't even barely, it should barely be considered either a Roger Waters album or a Pink Floyd record. I give this one star. I also give this one star, and I advise you to skip it. I don't even know why I give it one star, frankly, but I do, I guess. I'm still looking for that special flower. You know what? I give it a star. half star. I give it a half star. All right. Based on my doubt of the one star review. 
All right, so moving right along, that was basically the dissolution of the band. Following that, you have a couple live albums and three albums that we're going to talk about mainly. Okay, mm-hmm. so the first one, this is uh, you know post Roger Waters' exit in 1987, they shat out "Momentary Lapse of Reason," which uh, you've probably heard a couple of these songs at the dentist or something. Yeah, it's really dated. It's basically a D- David Gilmour solo record. Um, doesn't really sound like Pink Floyd. Tries the sound of its era. It's like the David Gilmour who played on No More Lonely Nights by Paul McCartney. Which is a great song, but that was an odd, proggy guitar solo for such a straightforward pop song, wasn't it? Yeah, it sounds like momentary lapse. Right, right, right. Yeah, that. Um, there's nothing really to recommend it. I give it one and a half stars. Um, I gave it one. I, you know, I, I could probably be persuaded to do one and a half. There's the, there was a couple of hit singles on it again that you probably would reckon recognize. Um, it was really huge at the time. It was like I think it went like multi platinum. I think mainly because people wanted to get to another record before they before they saw the live act. Yeah. Also, look. Let's be honest. They're in a blatant just cash grab phase because right. it's not even really a pink. Fl- they had wrested control of the name, I guess, from Roger Waters. But this, and there was a drawn out court battle that made the whole thing seem ugly anyway. Yeah, and it's you know hardly any of the other members are on it. It's really just a David Gilmore record. They putting the Pink Floyd name on it is, is was just a pure cash grab. I don't think there's any other way to look at it. Um, there's there's basically there would have been more ethically honest to go tour, you know, for him to put a solo record and tour it that way. Right, or just call it Stink Floyd. Yeah. That would, uh, that's a really good idea. Sure Can you uh, imagine that'd be awesome? It would. <laughs> Stink Floyd. <laughs> that changes the whole. Th- oh, it man, does so much better. It really would be. Uh, the main way to differentiate, in case you can't, between uh, 1987's "Momentary Lapse of Reason" and 1994's uh, "Division Bell." is the former is the shitty album that doesn't sound like Pink Floyd, and the latter is the shitty album that actually sounds like Pink Floyd. Right, yeah. So they kind of go for some of the Floyd-y kind of tropes, even like they do the, they do the e, e minor to C chord change again. <laughs> they do that, you know, they, they're, uh, they're kind of signifying that it's very Pink Floyd-y. It sounds like, you know, uh, the songs on the Division Bell sound like the songs where you're at the Pink Floyd concert and you leave to go buy a $20 beer during that song and then when you come back you hope they're playing like Wish You Were Here or something. Sounds like the songs you don't really want to hear them play right. at the arena show but they do anyway. And I give Momentary Lapse of Reason one and a half stars. No, this and is the, the Division oh, okay, And the Division Bell two stars. I'm going to give the Division Bell one star too. And, and I, gave, I give them both one stars based on the premise that I would never want to willingly listen to them for any reason at all. I sat through yeah. them though. I sat through them though. Yeah, for this. I mean, it, you know, when you hit those records, when you're doing a trawl, it's basically the diarrhea dribble at the yeah. conclusion of an endless shit. It wasn't easy getting through them. I got to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. So the the only the only other album to talk about, and it is worth mentioning, is 2014's "The Endless River," which promises to be the final Pink Floyd record. Although this, they're all no, I, I guess Richard Wright is no longer with us. Three and no, four are still around, but he's on the record. And it comprises instrumental and ambient music based on material recorded during sessions for the group's previous album, The Division Bell. Additional material was recorded in 2013 and 2014 on Gilmore's boat or some shit. 
and in the studio or some shit. <laughs> Only one of the tracks has lead vocals, and that's the song Louder Than Words, written by uh, Gilmore's right arm, his wife. I This one, uh, it's not really that interesting. No. It's, uh, it's not. It sounds exactly like what it is, which is here are some songs that maybe could make this Division Bell album. I guess these are all kind of Rick Wright written ones. Um, you know, it's the, it was made a lot in the 90s, and then I guess a little bit later, a time when not really known for uh, great like synth keyboard sounds. It's all sort of very like digital, very, kind of very dated sounding. Um, it's not really bursting with amazing creative ideas. It sounds like, you know, um, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like somebody made like Pink Floyd library music. It sounds like somebody yeah. was like, Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need something for this TV show that sounds like I Pink need Floyd. a Pink Floyd cue. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And I need a really long one so I could just take parts of it. Yeah, right. Anyway, that's the uh, conclusion. I give it one and a half stars. Uh, I gave it one. Sure, one and a half. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm glad we could exit this trawl as friends. I think I got very tired at the end. The last three albums were uh, pretty dire to get through them all. Um, just it wheezes. The last the, four. The, the last band. Four. Yeah, it's true. The last four. It really the band, which was once so uh, endlessly listenable, uh, became just such a grueling wheezing. It was like watching a giant behemoth like slowly die. Yeah. And you don't get the feeling that if Roger Waters had stuck around and they kept making music together, that it would have been really any better. I no. think it takes a special kind of... It's pretty rare that anybody who reaches that like dinosaur st- st- status of playing football stadiums can maintain it being creatively interesting. It's a, it's really not really... I mean, Dylan kind of... He doesn't... He's, even he's not really a football stadium guy, but... Someone who's like a big titan like that who can continue making interesting music into the 80s, 90s, you know, from the 60s. There's not really very many. Listen, I know it's either an unpopular opinion or people would say, well, of course, you're a nerd. You like the early stuff. But let me make a case for Sid Barrett owning this band. Number one, he was only around for 10 months, but it seems like years because of what Mm -hmm. he produced. Uh, Number two... He haunted the band. I mean, the band just used the idea of Sid Barrett to mainly take its entire creative path forward. Once they decided on a direction, all they did was look back at Sid. And they threw in Roger's dad for good measure and called it a day. Well, the, the, there's kind of the first phase with Sid, and then there's the transitional phase where they're figuring out what they're doing. Some of it is like inspired by Sid. So like Rick Wright's trying to write kind of Sid-like songs. And then they move into where they mature a little bit, and then they then start, they, then they start using right about they use Sid. Sid as subject matter. Right. And then when they run out of that, it's like they turn to this kind of political, like a war sort thing. Of thing. And it's um, and then they battle each other in court. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just they used Sid. Yeah. They they desiccated him like a fucking chicken. Um. Well. Yeah, I guess that's... I don't really have a problem with it, per se. I no, I mean, it's exploited. It's exploitative, no matter how you look at it, because this is a guy who wanted to pretend like that whole time in his life didn't happen. Right. He tried to erase himself from yeah. society because he didn't want that part of his life to be right. uh, part of his life from then forward. 
and they refuse to let him go. Yeah. I think it's more like, you know, I guess you could see it that way. They made some great art out of it. They did. So that whenever you're making great art, I think you're kind of like giving something to the world. So that doesn't come across as exploitative to me. Um, but I, th- there's definitely like, you know, when they had to find out what to do next, it gets a lot less interesting. Like, I, I mean, like the subject matter of the wall to me, the story of it, I, I, I almost like wish it didn't have that story. I, I would yeah, like yeah, the songs a better as a as, different story. A story's fine. But even just as standalone, standalone songs, I like a lot of the songs on it. The stuff that's more connected to the story, I, it doesn't really reach me as much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting history. It's an oft misunderstood history in America. And a lot of their best stuff is really underappreciated and not really very well known and would be, I think, surprising to a lot of people who haven't done the deep dive into it. There's a lot of quality in there that's um, kind of buried. I'm going to tell you right now the three best Pink Floyd albums that have ever been created. Uh, We're going to start with number three. Number three is Metal. Number two is Dark Side of the Moon. And number one is the Piper at the Gates of Dawn. You may disagree, but you would just be wrong. Solid. And then the worst album is definitely Animals, and that one goes out to my buddy Joe Cravino, who it it hurts him very, very much that I feel that way. Hmm. Um, Okay, so my list is similar but a little different. I I also have Metal at number three. I have Piper at the Gates of Dawn at number two, and Dark Side of the Moon at number one. That's a pretty normie list I have there. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's that's a solid list. Um, worst album, I'm going to give to. I'm not really counting the uh, the uh, '80s ones without Roger Waters. Those are worse than any of the worst uh, main canonical albums. I guess they're all canonical, but um, I'm going to go with the final cut as my least favorite. That that's but that Animals is better than the final cut. I must say. To me, it grates more, so I just hate it more. The final cut is like. Hating having diarrhea. It's just, it's just, it's uncomfortable for a little That's bit. That's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back it, to business. But yeah, here's the thing. From 1967 to 1973, they were one of the best bands that ever walked the earth. And then that stopped for me. Yeah, sure. It's not the popular opinion, but it's the right opinion. <laughs> right. That's what we aim to do here. That's right. So we aim to make you mad. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope you appreciated uh, what we had to say. Maybe it angered you. Maybe it maybe it inspired you. Definitely check out the playlist on our website, discography.com. And uh, feel free to leave us angry comments and tell us um, that you think we're wrong. You'll be wrong. You will be wrong, but we would love to hear from you. And for the love of all that's sacred, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of your choice. We'll be here every Monday from now till the end of time. I know this is only our first couple episodes, but we can assure you that we will be punctual with uh, new content every Monday. You'll see. We'll prove to you. All right. We will see you all soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.